Hello, and welcome to episode 27 of Desi Books, news and views about Desi literature from the world over. I'm your host, Jenny Butt. Thank you for tuning in. In today's episode, we have Sanjana Sathyan in the Desi Craft Chat segment. She'll be discussing her debut novel, Gold Diggers. And we have Dr. Gayatri Sethi, who's back with a new selection of books in the Desi Kidlit segment. Before we get started, as May is also Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month in the US, I'd like to pass on some information about a project being done by some writer friends through City Lit Project, in, uh, which is a nonprofit operating out of Baltimore, Maryland. They've got a host of virtual literary events featuring Asian American writers, editors, and other publishing folks happening throughout this month. And you can check them out at, at City Lit Project, one word, on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And the aim is to bring the community together by celebrating the art of literature in a space where communities can unpack their own narratives, past, present, and beyond, to better imagined futures. And we could all use a lot of that right now. Now, please sit back and enjoy. Notable new books for me. You can find all the titles mentioned in this new book segment at bookshop.org, which benefits local independent booksellers directly. Go to bookshop.org slash lists slash Desi dash books dash 2021. There's also a new UK based list at uk.bookshop.org slash lists slash Desi dash books dash UK dash 2021. My apologies to non-US and non-UK listeners, but I always mention or note they see books from other parts of the world on these episodes as well. So I just don't have a bookshop list for them yet. And I know I don't always catch all new books by writers of South Asian origin. So if you've got a new book coming out, please tag the they see books account on Twitter or Instagram to let me know. You can also send me an email to um, the Desi Books account at hellodesibooks at gmail.com. The social media links will also be in the transcript and they're always on the website. Now, I missed mentioning an April book in the last episode. So let's start with that before we get to the new and notable books in the first half of May. Curb by Divya Victor, <clears throat> excuse me, is a hybrid book of prose and poetry. I reviewed it at NPR last month and will share the link in the transcript. It's a book that looks at the everyday lives of South Asian immigrants and particularly five in the US who were killed by white nationalists. This is so far one of my favorite reads of the year. Next we have Waves Across the South, A New History of Revolution and Empire by Sajid Sivasundaram. This is a book about environmental history, the consequences of historical violence, the legacies of empire, the extraction of resources, and the indigenous futures that Western imperialism cut short. A Military History of India Since 1972 by Arjun Subramanyam, is about how the Indian nation state and its armed forces have coped with the changing contours of modern conflict in the decades since 1972. And it looks at the conflicts with or within uh, Pakistan, China, Kashmir, Sri Lanka, Punjab, and more. Now, he's going to be on an upcoming episode on the Five They See Faves segment as well. The Color of God by Aisha S. Chaudhry 
is her memoir about the joys and sorrows of growing up in Canada in a fundamentalist, puritanical Muslim household and in uh, revisiting the beliefs and ideals that she was raised with, Chaudhry invites us to reimagine our ideas of self and family and state and citizenship, love and loss. She'll be on our next episode with a reading from the book as well. The Marvelous Mirza Girls by Shiva Karim is a Delhi-based novel. It's witty and thoughtful. It's more than a teen romance story, I think, because it's also about finding meaning in one's roots and heritage. And speaking of which, the, this next book also does that. The Parted Earth by Anjali Jetty is a sweeping partition-based novel covering multiple geographies and periods through the lives of three generations of women. Like the previously mentioned novel, as I said, this one is also about finding meaning and purpose through discovering our roots and heritage. Next is Cyclopedia Exotica by Aminder Dhaliwal. It's a graphic novel that was first serialized on Instagram. And through the lives of this uh, mythic um, Cyclops community, Daliwal explores the microaggressions and xenophobia faced by immigrants. And with this parallel universe, she comments on um, race, difference, beauty, and belonging, touching on all of these issues with a deadpan humor seeped in millennial references. Next we have How to Kidnap the Rich by Rahul Raina, another Delhi novel um, that covers a wide range of themes and plot points, con men, reality television, capitalism, and more. It's a social satire, a love story, and a thriller. It's out in the UK now, and I believe it will be out in the US soon too. I'm closing with a fascinating book that I missed in March, and it's by Shrabani Basu. I hope I pronounced her name right. Um, she's a historian, and she's written some great books. And this one's called The Mystery of the Parsi Lawyer. And it's the true story of how Arthur Conan Doyle tried to get pardon for the first Indian, the Parsi Edelji, um, who had uh, the first Indian to have a parish in England and who got embroiled in this legal um, issue, uh, which I'm not going to say too much because you don't want to give away the mystery, but it's really um, worth checking out. In Desi Craft Chat today, we have Sanjana Sathyan. She was raised in Georgia by Indian immigrant parents. She's a graduate of the Iowa Writers Workshop, an alumna of the Clarion Writers Workshop, and a former Paul and Daisy Soros Fellow. She's also worked as a journalist in San Francisco and in Mumbai, and she's taught creative writing to high school, college, graduate, and postgraduate level students in Iowa, Alaska, India, and New Zealand. Gold Diggers, her debut novel, is a magical realist coming-of-age story. It skewers the model minority myth to tell a hilarious and moving tale about immigrant identity, community, and the underside of ambition. A floundering second-generation teenager growing up in Bush-era Atlanta suburbs, um, Neil Narayan is funny and smart, but struggles to bear the weight of expectations of his family and their Asian-American enclave. He tries to want their version of success, but mostly Neil just wants his neighbor across the cul-de-sac, Anita Dayal. When he discovers that Anita is the beneficiary of an ancient alchemical potion made from stolen gold, 
a lemonade that harnesses the ambition of the gold's original owner, Neil sees his chance to get ahead. But events spiral into a tragedy that rips the community apart. And years later, in the Bay Area, Neil still bristles against that community's expectations. And he finds that he might need just one more hit of that lemonade, no matter the cost. Now, that, that was me just reading the back blurb, right? But um, in this conversation that you're about to hear, uh, Sanjana, who, as I said earlier, teaches creative writing as well, uh, and I talk about the craft and the process of how this book came together. So it's a fascinating conversation, and here she is now. Welcome, Sanjana, to the They See Books podcast, and congratulations on the debut novel, The Gold Diggers. Um, this is the craft chat segment, where we'll discuss your craft with the novel. And thank the first, you. oh, go ahead, go ahead. Sorry, I thought you had paused. I just said yes. thank you. You're most welcome. Um, the first question that I always like to ask is, you know, every book, of course, has its own journey and debut books in particular, because they all start out in different ways. But the start of every book's journey is always some inspiration, some idea, some moment, you know, that compels you as a writer to say, I'm going to commit to this long-term project. So what was that, you know, seed or that inspiration or moment for you with this novel? That's a wonderful way of putting it, the, the moment of commitment. <laughs> mm -hmm. For me, the moment of commitment was when I discovered the voice that the novel was going to be told in. Um, I generally knew its setting. I knew the first half was going to take place in the Atlanta suburbs. I knew the central conceit. I was interested in writing about a mother and a daughter who were stealing gold and then using it in kind of a magical ritual. So I had all of that stuff, but that was just raw. And the moment this became something I knew I could work on for years was when I started writing from the perspective of that mother and daughter's neighbor. So instead of writing um, Anjali, the mother, Anita, the daughter, I hopped heads into their neighbor who was this bumbling 15 year old boy named Neil. And when I entered his perspective, I was like, oh, this is, a character who is flawed and interesting and someone I can hang out with for years if I need to, if that's how long it takes to write this. Yeah, you know, and that's a good good point you made. Uh, I do want to come back to the, uh, the question of Neil's point of view being most of the, um, the narration or the narrative. Um, but let me, uh, you know, and, and yeah, I think having that point of view or that voice in your head definitely helps because you're going to be spending a lot of time with that character. So, yep. Um, now there's a lot going on in this novel, though it starts out in India. It's obviously focused on the Indian American world now. And I think I, I've seen on Twitter, I've seen you mentioned this is an American novel and I'm glad you said that. I, I, I like that. I think, um, you know, far too many of our writers here tend to want to go back and and write stories about India when I keep thinking there's all this stuff happening here now, you know, let's write about here now. Um, and, and you explore issues related to second generation Indian Americans, obviously, in particular. There's a lot of topics you're covering there. Um, and I'm not going to ask you because this is about craft. I want to ask you about the topics in particular. But just for our listeners, I'll mention some of them. You talk about obviously the immigrant culture, the model minority myth, that's class privilege, that's racist stereotyping, capitalism, ambition, coming of age, identity. There's even a romance there. But what I like is that you're doing it all in ways that are often satirical rather than serious, which is obviously very effective for this book. And so my question is, is that your natural writing stance, or did you have to work to get into that narrative register? Yeah, I, 
I didn't think of myself as all that funny until I went to an MFA program and was reading a lot of stuff in, in workshop that was, was much more serious in tone than what I had enjoyed writing for, for a few years. And it's been interesting to me to see people connect with the humor in the book, which is really gratifying. Um, but I think of that kind of trite quote that like comedy is tragedy plus time. Mm -hmm. um, because I think there are real, like there's a quest for emotional equilibrium at the heart of the book. You know, Neil, as you say, there's a romance. Neil wants his best friend and neighbor, Anita. He is desperate for her to see him. He's desperate to feel like he belongs in America. And uh, he's sarcastic. And I think he has um, some witty ways about him. But I always felt like that was his worldview, that that was part of character rather than, you know, a tone that I was sort of beginning with. Um, mm -hmm. And I think the more I wrote, the more I realized that a lot of the world building was going to happen through his voice because I couldn't just sketch the suburbs of, of Georgia. I couldn't just sketch Silicon Valley where this book takes place uh, without having a little bit of perspective and snark uh, in the way I was doing it. Right, right. And I, I've, I worked in Silicon Valley, so I hear you. Um, now, now talk, let's talk about Neil and, and that point of view for a few minutes here. So as you said, much of the story sort of fell into place for you because of that voice, that point of view, rather than Anjali, the mother, or Anita, the, um, the, the daughter. Now, you know, there's one thing also in particular, as you said, you know, Neil's kind of this, this he's, he's fumbling around. He's trying to find his place in the world, right? He's trying to figure things out. It is a coming of age in that sense. And, and one thing that jumped out to me was when Neil says, you know, if I had roots in American soil, and if our collective past was more textured than I'd been led to believe, then there may, you know, maybe there were other ways of being brown and often. It, it's a very interesting thing. And probably this one question is going to go slightly away from craft, but I wanted to kind of, I, I just reviewed a book that, that I can't talk about right now. But the thing is, I wasn't born in the US, but when I look around at some of the second gen Indian Americans or South Asian Americans, I feel like, gosh, I know I've read more about the history of South Asian immigrants in the US, like from the 1800s onwards than some of these folks know. And I get that American schools don't focus on South Asian history, of course, but there are so many sources out there. So just like your character, Neil, I thought that was a very important point you made about him not feeling rooted and sort of fumbling around a bit. And that's that's something I've observed too. So why why do you think, I mean, what what do you think needs to happen for that to change? Well, I'm actually curious if, if I can ask you why where did you start reading about South Asian American history? Because because that's not, I feel like that's not that common among either second generation or first generation people to be like naturally fluent in these histories. Yeah, I mean, for me. I came to the US in 98, right? And I was working in the Midwest. And I think for me, it was really when 9-11 happened because I was in the Midwest surrounded by mostly white people. And mm -hmm. then when 9-11 happened, I was personally experiencing, let's just call it certain kinds of incidents that I had not expected. Mm -hmm. And I didn't have any South Asian folks around me to, I didn't have any network. Uh, I, I'd moved here on my own. I had no family, nothing. And so I started looking around in books. That's the way I connect with the world around me. So I started looking and I found, I think the first book I found was The Karma of Brown Folk, you know, yeah. which everybody's read. But of course that led me to lots of other sources. And, you know, I started collecting books by other writers as well. And then I found Sada, 
you know, the, the South Asian digital archive and, you know, yeah, yeah. And so, it's all, yeah, and because for me as a first generation immigrant, I wanna know the stories of those who've come before me. And I wanted to know, you know, what have they encountered and how did they deal with it? That was where, that was what kind of started my reading history that way. So anyways, yeah, it, that was my response. I hope that answers your question. Yes, definitely. Thank you for sharing that. Cause I, I actually, I, think that that is sort of a route that a lot of people take who do decide mm -hmm. that it really matters to them to learn about South Asian American history. Like mm -hmm. it requires a sort of like personal moment of discomfort um, yeah. to send you seeking. Like I think part of the reason a lot of second generation, um, particularly Indian Americans, I know, mm -hmm. um, this doesn't seem to be as true of like Bangladeshi and Pakistani American friends. Um, but a lot of the second generation Indian American friends I know, they're like, they feel like their identities are kind of, like they have some identity questions, they have some angst about it, but like they're doing well in America. Like they have their jobs, they're like getting married and like this is, you know, all the stuff the book rants about in the second half, but they don't have much need to sit back and introspect and Something that happens with Neil in the book, which is a version of what you just described, and it is exactly what I went through when I was um, in my early 20s and living in San Francisco, is like a moment of, of disjointedness causes you to be like, okay, there's a rupture in my life, and now mm -hmm. I need to go looking to fill it. Um, and for me, I, like I was living in the Bay Area, and there's so much they see history out there. Mm -hmm. <coughs> yeah. There's so much Daisy history out there. And so it was really thrilling to discover it. And, you know, Vijay Prashad, who you mentioned, was mm -hmm. a big part of that for me, Vivek Ball, the mm -hmm. uh, uh, Bengali Harlem. Um, but I, I have these moments of communion, like the one we're having right now with people who've had this like moment of history matters. And then we like we try to evangelize it to other people. But I mean, I think to kind of bring it to craft, like. It, if you want a character to have this kind of relationship with the past, like it would, it would have been really hard for me to just slap history onto this book if I didn't have a narrator who could have this experience of disjuncture and the, the experience of uh, loneliness and a lack of belonging. That's what I think justifies the history in the book. Yeah, and I think, you know, I, I could see as I was reading that it justifies also the fact that you use Neil's point of view for the story because you had to have that character arc to be able to do that. Whereas if you'd used Anita's or, or Anjali's, they, they have different character arcs in the story. So I can see why Neil's point of view mattered, you know, in terms of crafting the narrative here. Yeah, yep, that makes sense. Well, okay, let me come back to craft then. And let's talk about the magical realism aspect, of course. Um, now, is that something you mentioned earlier just now that, you know, you had that whole gold and alchemy thing in mind, but is that, you know, something you'd always decided, okay, I'm going to write a magical realism story or have, you know, strong aspects of that. And I, and I ask this because I teach a class on magical realism. And I always ask my students to be clear on why they're bringing it into a story and have some, you know, personal rules or guidelines for themselves on how they weave it into the ordinary world of their characters, because you're not writing fantasy or sci-fi. It's not that kind of world building. So if you can talk a little bit about just, you know, how you decided to bring the magical realism aspect and, you know, just maybe your creative inspirations for it too. Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, I wrote mostly realism until uh, I maybe turned like 25 and I, I left realism almost entirely for a few years because it wasn't letting me, it, I had become locked out of my own writing. Um, I had come to adopt a sort of self-seriousness and this like fake musicality, really somber realism. And it, it wasn't fun to write and it wouldn't have been fun for anyone else to read. And I needed, you know, I think a lot about like the, the Russian formalist Viktor Shlovsky, like the, this idea that um, art is in part about estrangement. And I think I needed to be estranged from my own material in order to re-enter it. And so kind of out of nowhere, I started writing 
magical realism. I did do some sci-fi. I'm not great at world building and often like the tech is just too hard for me to get into. Mm-hmm. But when I made that shift, I started, um, I started reading like George Saunders, Kelly Link. I started reading a lot of Murakami. Um, and then I returned to some writers I had loved in high school. Like I loved Rushdie. I loved Marquez. I really loved a lot of like Latin American magical realists like Cortazar. Mm-hmm. And so when I returned to some of that and just like weird books, like I came to love Trout Fishing in America, this book by Richard Brodigan that was so popular when it came out yeah. in the 60s, right? But like no one really reads it now. <laughs> um, and I was just like, oh, wow, like these are, these bend the world. They they change the world. And because they they sort of estrange you from reality, they let you see reality more fully. And to get to that thing that you tell your students, something I tell my students too is like, ambiguity is not the same thing as productive mystery. Like, like you have to make something that is magical concrete within the reality of the story. And it also has to correspond to an emotional reality. I mean, mm-hmm. some really like high fantasy and hard sci-fi, sometimes I lose track of the emotional reality in those texts and I just don't have anything to latch on to. But, mm-hmm. you know, when I read George Saunders, I'm like, okay, this is non-real in order to show us something about capitalism. Um, it's something very specific. You know, and Rushdie, of course, um, writes about how magic is like a befitting way to describe the condition of migration. You are estranged from the place you come from or the place you have roots. And so life becomes capital A absurd. And this mm-hmm. is the craft choice you make to account for that. Right, right. Yes, and, and that's exactly why I tend to, whenever I do magical realism as well, it's, it's to explain certain things that you just can't do with the real world, but you're still in the real world. You're not building another world, you know, so that's important, yes. Well, and so let's talk about that world. You know, you cover within in the world of the novel uh, quite a bit of geography and time space. And I'm guessing that you did quite a bit of research. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of detail. And so my question is, what were some of, maybe one or two of the techniques that you might've used to ensure that you got the details right? And then maybe what were maybe one or two discoveries that surprised or shocked you? Sure, yeah. So I can break down the the techniques for research into just basically like reading books and talking to people. And the, the conversations I had, I talked to my uncle for several hours to get the sections about uh, IIT Bombay and about Bombay in the 1980s. Um, I, I did live in Bombay uh, between 2015 and 2017. So I have a relationship to the city, but it's not, you know, when I live there, I live in posh Western Bandra, um, not like the world that my uncle knows and, and comes from. Uh, and so I talked to him and it was just great to, I thought I was going to talk to him and just get information about like how I could construct a story. Like I thought I was gonna get material facts. And actually what I got was like the shape of his memories about these years at IIT Bombay. Like he talked so much about music and goofing around and like Mm -hmm. the joy that came from almost like getting to be a kid in a way that it, it seemed like maybe some of the experience prepping to get into a place like IIT had not allowed him to be this young carefree kid. And so I didn't just get to steal his like life material, the concrete material. I also got a sense of tone from those conversations that that was really, really valuable. The second kind of research I did was reading and I researched first alchemical traditions in order to kind of understand gold's cultural and symbolic significance uh, across time and also to set the rules of the magic, which is something that that we just talked about. I also did a lot of research into the gold rush and I was trying to figure out if I could successfully lodge like a story of Indian history in the American gold rush. Like I went looking for that because I knew that I wanted to connect the book to the past. And we've, you know, we know about 
uh, Indian uh, workers showing up in Salem, Massachusetts and in uh, California around like 1905, 1907, 1914. But I was not finding that much about the 1849 gold rush. And it took a while, but at some point when I already had the contemporary conceit about gold theft, I found this document uploaded into the Library of Congress's digital archives uh, that is a German travelogue and it told this story of uh, someone just referred to in the text as the Hindu, quote unquote, and otherwise referred to as the Bombayan, which of course is not actually how we would talk about someone from Bombay. And it was actually, it was really chilling. It was the story of, of basically a lynch mob of, of vigilante justice of these white people in the gold rush deciding that this Indian man had uh, stolen gold and they were gonna hold him responsible. And I became really obsessed with finding more proof of this character in history. That was a struggle. And so as I kind of did my own research, I ended up giving Neil a version of my quest and saying kind of, I'm not gonna write a huge historical novel. I, that, that wasn't the direction that I wanted to go. It just wasn't gonna be as much fun. But what I wanted to do was give Neil the same set of questions I had, which is something I think I took a tiny bit from like All the King's Men by Robert Penn Warren. Uh, the narrator there is a history graduate student. And then I also thought a lot about how Ruth Ozeki pulls this off in A Tale for the Time Being. She has her kind of alter ego in the text reading this diary of a young Japanese girl and uh, I use those as as models for thinking about kind of that that intertextual stuff. I'm not sure inter intertextual is actually the right word, but some some kind of relationship between narrator and uh, mystery. Yep, yep. And I, you know, I remember I, when I read that about the Indian guy um, during the Gold Rush. I thought, of course, you know, why wouldn't there be an Indian guy there? Of course. <laughs> They, you know, you, you, I'm surprised nobody's already written a novel like, uh, like C. Pam Zang, you know, <laughs> it's, it's, it was like, of course, it had to be. Um, and then tell us about maybe, you know, through all this research, uh, obviously, you mentioned one of these discoveries, which is about this Indian guy, that was kind of surprising and interesting and fascinating. But is there, was there anything else you discovered along the way that perhaps surprised or shocked you in your research and maybe didn't make it into the book, you know? Yeah, well, one thing that really blew me away again is like I had the contemporary conceit. I already knew I wanted them drinking gold. And then when I was doing research into like Vedic alchemy and kind of like a lot of like tantric alchemy stuff, mm -hmm. um, I, like I was muddling my way through. I'm sure someone who actually knows how to do academic research would have charted a more intelligent path, but I was grabbing books that were unused and untouched in the University of Iowa library. And I discovered that there were um, like prayers and, and notes about how to conduct rituals um, in really ancient texts that seemed to suggest that drinking or consuming gold, or even just the idea of imbibing the qualities of gold into yourself, like that existed in ancient alchemical traditions in India and also outside of India. And that was just an incredible discovery to be like, great, here are my epigraphs. Great, mm -hmm. I justified this whole thing that I thought I'd made up. Um, the other stuff that didn't make it in was just, I tried to write this whole section set in 1914 because I was really interested in and remain very interested in the Cuther party, but like it just had nothing to do with the gold conceit. It had nothing to do with the novel and maybe I'll return to that later. Right, yes, yeah. I, I wish someone would, you know, we, we need more novels about that whole part of uh, South Asian history in the US, don't we? I mean, we so, really yeah. do, yeah. Yeah. Okay, well, let's well, a couple more questions. So let's talk about Atlanta now, the suburbs of Atlanta, as I said, so you're based, you live in Atlanta, right? Or you grew up there or? Yes, I grew up here and I, I am back here kind of by accident. I was um, supposed to be in India last year and then the pandemic hit and I, I actually got locked out of India and so found myself living in my parents' house for four months and then moved out and now I just live here. <laughs> <laughs> okay. 
Well, um, it, it, it's interesting because I know uh, quite a few South Asian writers based in the Atlanta area, which, you know, and I've gotten to know them online mostly, um, even though I, I've been to Atlanta, obviously, but um, so t do you find, I mean, is this region, has this been sort of a muse for your writing uh, or was it just specifically for this book you decided to set it there? Well, I think we we work with like the landscapes that we had access to as, as children. I, for a long time, kept trying to write stuff set in India, which kind of harkens back to what you were saying <laughs> earlier. Cause I was like, India is the landscape that's worthy of literature. Like, you know, my my dad's from Kerala, my, my mom's from Bangalore and grew up all over the North. And so I would hear these stories about um, these worlds that were lusher and textured and just seemed more dreamlike to me. And, and that's where I tried to go with my writing at first. But the truth is that I, I wasn't gonna write those places as well because they just weren't, they didn't belong to me. And like it or not, like the Atlanta suburbs kind of belong to me. And so I found myself just stuck with these places that I thought of as no places. I mean, there's a lot of strip malls and a lot of highways and a lot of car culture. And I know this is the same in like Texas and, and New Jersey and a lot of other places that, that we tend to congregate, but kind of amused, but I, I wasn't happy that it was my muse. I see. Okay. Well, I mean, but it's funny how there's so many Desi writers in Atlanta. I just, I, I don't know if I just happen to know them or, you know what, but yeah, there's quite a few of you guys there. But maybe when the pandemic's done, you all can get together and have a big party for all your books, you know. I know, we uh, need to. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, now, I, my, my last two questions. So, uh, you went to Yale, is that right? And then Iowa Writers Workshop, right? Yes. And so, what I want to ask you in this question is, not necessarily, you know, the whole journey of the novel from when it got written to contracted and then obviously the TV series with Mindy Kaling's company. But, you know, it, think of this as now you are talking to perhaps another writer who's listening, who's trying to think of how to get their debut novel, um, you know, written and published. Sure. What, what would be one or two, um, you know, in, pieces of advice you might give to that writer listening out there? Yeah, um, I I always tell people to learn to read for craft. I don't know if this is something you talk about with students too, but mm -hmm. I think so many of us decide we want to write because we love to read. And so we tear through books and we, we read them as readers, but we have to learn how to read them as writers. And so that means like disaggregating things and being like, how does structure work in this? How does this writer control a scene? When do they pick up the pace? When do they slow the pace? What would I steal and what would I never want to do? And I think you can train yourself to do that by first like becoming aware. I mean, it's like, an, it makes it sound very Buddhist, but like awareness comes first, like remembering yourself as writer as you read is a really good way to do that. Mm -hmm. um, the other piece of advice I, I give um, is something that I take from the writer Anne Fadiman, who was one of my teachers in college, who left a big impression on me. She used to call us into her office and make us sit there while she pulled up our essays or our latest piece on her computer. And she would make us go word for word with her and kind of defend why we had made every single word choice. Mm -hmm. And this was horrible. Like it murdered <laughs> her ego. Uh, it was so painful, but it served as like an antidote to this thing that I think a lot of young writers feel, which is that all that matters is like the organic upwelling of their own genius. Um, and, you know, Roth said that a lot of writing is just moving sentences around and Anne kind of made us learn that. And when I do this with students, it's often most painful on the students who already think of themselves as writers. And I just think that's an important like ego hit to take pretty young um, so that you can do that to your own work because no one else is going to. Right, well, and those are both great pieces of advice. And I, I tell, yeah, you're right. I do tell students a lot about reading as a writer. Francine Prose's book on that was life-changing for me personally. and 
you know, it makes, uh, for me, it makes me a slow reader. I don't know about you, but yeah, it makes me a slower reader because I'm reading, I'm doing close reading and um, yeah, it, but it, it's, it's the way to do it. That's yep. the way you learn. So. Yeah. And that's a great book. The yeah, it's good. Yeah. I, I just wish she had more, I don't know, she picked more, I don't know, diverse examples because a lot of them were just white writers, but there you go. Um, but, yeah. Um, okay. And now my last question, which I ask everybody is, um, what's your favorite basic book and why? Uh, I love The Buddha of Suburbia by Hannah Qureshi. Mm -hmm. um, I grew up reading all the kind of Daisy books you get handed when you're a reader. You know, you get Manu's Children, you get The God of Small Things, you get The Interpreter of Maladies. Uh, but no one told me that Daisy books could also be rude and irreverent and body and highly political. I mean, obviously, mm -hmm. Irma Roy is, is very political too, but I, I loved this book when I picked it up in my mid-20s because it broke every mold for what I thought of as an immigrant novel. The narrator, Kareem, is biracial, he's bisexual, he uh, you know, puts on a play where someone makes him put on brown face to be more brown. And that's like a deeply comic but also deeply real experience. And I had never seen it rendered, I had never seen an experience of racism rendered with that duality of like, look how absurd this is, but also look how frustrating it is. And it, it just, it changed me. Yeah, no, that's a great book. I, it's been a while since I read it, but um, but I remember reading that and then thinking I have to read more of Hanif Qureshi. And I, I wait for his essays now, they're so rare, but when he writes yeah. them, you know, you're like, yes, this is why yeah. we need more of him in the world. Um, but yeah, good, good choice, excellent. Um, <laughs> I think that's all I have for now. So thank you so much. This was a um, lot of fun and I'm sure that listeners will enjoy uh, finding out more about your craft and about this novel. And I know you've got quite a journey ahead of you now with, you're gonna be co-writing the, uh, is it the TV script or a movie script? Yeah, we're looking at a limited series television show. Got it. Okay, so you're gonna, and, and you're gonna be co-scripting or whatever the terminology is. Um, okay. Right, so you, that's, is that your next big project or do you have some other things you're gonna be doing alongside or? Yeah, I mean, I've got, I've got that. I'm uh, also working on new fiction, um, mm -hmm. but yeah, juggling a few things. As I right, yeah. Right, and then is there, do they have a timeline on when this is going to be um, on, on TV or, you know, the, the series, when it will be out or is that not something that happens this, I mean, I have no idea. So <laughs> I, obviously I don't know how the timelines work, but is there, a, is there a date in mind, like a year in mind when it will come out? We're really early. Um, we are literally just now interviewing potential writer showrunner. So that would be the person who is in charge of the whole, the whole show, they run the show right. and then they would co-write the pilot with me. So okay. I'm not gonna do anything until we have that collaborator yet. Ah, okay, got it, got it. Yeah, that's quite a long process because, yeah, I mean, film is such a collaborative medium, you need to have all the people exactly. involved. Yeah, so, okay, well, good luck to you with all of that, with this book, and um, we'll be cheering you on. Thank you for having me. I love this podcast, so it's very exciting to be on. Thank you. All righty, take care, and I'll let you know when it airs, of course. Okay, great, right. bye. Bye. In the They See Kidlit segment, Dr. Gayatri Sethi is back with some new book recommendations. Look up episode 24 for her previous recommendations and the introduction to her own work. This selection is ideal for holiday gifting, so the books are somewhat light-hearted, as Gayatri explains. Have a listen. <laughs> Thanks for having me back to the Desi Books podcast to talk about Desi Kid Lit. Um, I want to mention a few authors who have new books releasing between April and June of this year. Uh, and I wanted to share books that are really ideal for holiday gifting, 
Ramzan, birthdays, and summer reading. So I've chosen books that are lighthearted and lend themselves well to gifting. Uh, Reem Faruqi is an author um, based in the Atlanta area. And she has two new books coming out this late spring. Um, she's a notable author of Layla's Lunchbox. Amira's Picture Day is her new book. And she also has her very first middle grade book uh, for ages 8 to 12 called Unsettled, um, th- which is based on loosely on her own life story. She's of Pakistani descent and immigrated to Peachtree City, Georgia, Um, from the UAE when she was a teenager. Um, She's a photographer um, and she's written a beautiful book called Unsettled and it's a middle grade novel in verse with themes of belonging, identity, moving to a new country and culture. Um, It's just beautifully written. And Hannah Khan has given a lot of praise to the book uh, and calls it a gorgeously written story filled with warmth and depth. Uh, And Amira's Picture Day is her new picture book, which is releasing from Holiday House Books on April 13th. Um, And in this book, uh, there are beautiful illustrations by Famida Azim, who is a storyteller um, and uh, illustrator uh, from Bangladesh. Famida uh, immigrated to Virginia as a child uh, and uh, also her publishing debut was Muslim Women Are Everything. Um, and so she is the illustrator to Amira's Picture Day, which is a beautiful book about Eid and school picture day coinciding. And uh, Reem Faruqi has written it with just a heartwarming story, uh, which would make a great Eid gift for ages three to six. Um I have another really exciting new book I want to tell you about, which is a middle grade book written by Roxana Gidroz with illustrations from Famida Azim also. And this is a novel in verse also by a rowing, you know, by um, Roxana. Again, this is uh, coming out from Kokula Books on June 8th. Um, And this is the story of Samira, an 11-year-old Rohingya refugee who finds peace and empowerment in a local surf club for girls. This story uh, is told before and after of the burning and violence in her village in Burma. Uh, And then uh, it, it carries through with themes of Uh, finding herself, self-empowerment, and the representation of a community in South Asia that we rarely see in children's books. And I'm very, very looking forward to this book by Roxana, uh, who is the author of Mina versus the Monsoon and also Leila and Safran. Um, She had studied in London and Paris and has worked in Hong Kong um, and began her teaching career uh, after she graduated. And she now lives in Hawaii and she is an exciting uh, author to read and follow and her books make ideal gifts. SK Ali um, Sajida has a new book coming. It is called Misfit. In Love. It is the sequel to Saints and Misfits, uh, which was a couple of years ago, a young adult book uh, written um, beautifully, just one of my favorite young adult books uh, with the themes of romance, with Muslim representation. Um, and in the sequel, there are some really empowering themes, uh, even though it's about a wedding, um, but all of the unexpected uh, twists and turns in the story are um, really delightful and ones to really um, look forward to reading. Sajida, if you know about her, all of her books uh, make ideal gifting for uh, Eid, for holidays, for birthdays. Um, She holds a degree in creative writing from York University and she wrote um, from Love from A to Z by Simon & Schuster, Uh, And this was released in 2019 as one of my favorite young adult books, 
with Muslim representation. That book tackles Islamophobia in a really meaningful, heartful way. And this new book um, is a sequel. So uh, buying both Saints and Misfits and Misfit in Love together, and they have beautiful new covers, which are vibrant and uh, inviting, um, would make just beautiful gifts. Uh, and if you might recall, Sajida was also the co-editor um, of the book, um, Once Upon an Eve, which came out in 2020 and award, uh, won many awards. Um, and that book, I think, ha- is releasing in paperback uh, this spring. So um, any of those books would make uh, ideal gifts, and many of them are new. And each of these authors I've shared about have new books coming out between April and June, and I've just selected some books that I am uh, excited and eager to dive into and share, but a uh, extensive um, detail of every book with South Asian representation coming out each season is done by Darshna Kiani, and I encourage us all to use that as a resource. You could sign up for her newsletter um, off her website or uh, follow her blog and uh in that she shares about all of the books in the various categories, picture book, middle grade, as well as young adult coming out each uh, season. She includes books that were not written by South Asians, but just include South Asian themes as well. So it's um, an extensive list and I highly recommend this resource. Um, She herself has a picture book coming out uh, at the end of June, so please do look into that as a resource to get more ideas about books uh, that you might want to uh, investigate that are South Asian kid lit. Uh, Thanks again for having me back, and I look forward to sharing uh, my uh, July to September books in the next episode. You've been listening to episode 27 of Thaisi Books, news and views about Thaisi literature from the world over. I'm your host, Jenny Bart. Episode 28 will be up in a couple of weeks. Follow on Twitter at Thaisi Books or Instagram at Thaisi.Books and tag the accounts if you have requests or suggestions. Email at hellothesebooks at gmail.com. The transcript will be up in a few days on the website, theseebooks.com.